News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, a crucial UN climate summit opened yesterday. This uh, in light of appeals that have been going on, going out for countries around the world to do something as we deal with a climate crisis. This is kicking off about two weeks of some diplomatic negotiations by almost 200 countries now on how is the best way to tackle the challenge of intensifying global warming. And Redmond Shannon, global Global News European correspondent joins us now with the very latest on that. Redmond, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. What's the latest? I know things have kicked off there. What's happening there today? Well, today and tomorrow, Jill, will be a sort of a summit within a summit. It's the World Leaders Summit uh, and the first two full days of the uh, COP26 uh, two-week-long event in, in Glasgow. And uh, world leaders will, at a, just before um, 7, uh, East, 7 Pacific time, uh, started uh, addressing each other, will start uh, speaking about their commitments, about their goals, and how they intend to reach those commitments over the coming decades in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in their individual countries. And they will then... Uh, start speaking to each other uh, in, in terms of negotiations. So it's the big leaders from around the world will be kicking this off and there will be a lot of speeches, uh, a lot of different uh, goals perhaps announced, new details hope will be hopefully released over the coming two days by these leaders as they speak, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be speaking today to delegates. So we're expecting to hear some more announcements about goals and how countries will reach those goals. What we won't hear is uh, anything from the leaders of China and Russia. China, uh, President Xi and uh, President Putin from Russia will not be attending COP26. They did not attend the G20 Leaders Summit in person in Rome, Italy over the weekend either. Nonetheless, uh, they will be, will, will have delegates present. So uh, it's uh, going to be uh, a lot of negotiating, a lot of meetings, um, as that come after these two days of uh, speeches from world leaders. And that will ultimately, uh, the organizers hope, lead to some uh, more concrete agreements um, and some more details hammered out um, coming from the original Paris Agreement six years ago. It's, it's very much about nailing down the details this time and ratcheting up extra commitments to, uh, to get these uh, uh, emissions reductions over the coming decades. Uh, I know we heard from the U.S. President Joe Biden said he was disappointed that Russia and China didn't show up for this summit. Are you getting the impression other leaders are upset or will maybe speak out about this and their absence? Well, I think it's a it's a balancing uh, act, Jill, because of course uh, one, it's a diplomacy as well, not to uh, perhaps point too many fingers. Because although China is the world's biggest emitter uh, in total capacity, well, Canada, for example, has a per capita emissions much higher than China. So, and, and historically, China says although it is the biggest emitter right now. The carbon buildup in the atmosphere worldwide is from Western nations. So Europe and North America very much have caused this 
uh, crisis in terms of the greenhouse gas buildup in the atmosphere. Historically, China has overtaken these nations in, cur- in terms of current output. So it's a lot of delicate uh, dancing around between leaders and finger pointing sometimes because no matter who says who's to blame, someone else can point at another way of measuring these figures. So I don't think there will be too much heavy criticism of these leaders not attending in person, but uh, it certainly will make things a little more difficult um, when the details are trying to be hammered out. All right, Redmond, looking forward to more of your reports from the summit. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. That is Redmond Shannon. He is Global News European correspondent. He is going to be covering and bringing us updates from the summit that is happening right now, kicked off yesterday. That's the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow. This is Mornings with Simi. Busy, busy weekend for people throughout the Lower Mainland. Busy weekend for police forces as well. Let's bring in Mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Halloween night was so much fun at our house and in our neighborhood. I was so pleased to see that it was just so much more normal than last year. You know, lots of people were out. The weather was perfect, totally glorious. I was that mom with her kids uh, who were the first ones at everyone's door. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And everyone was just like in full festivity form. There were, I would say, less houses participating than before the pandemic, but the ones that did participate were just full on. And I feel like gone are the days where you could just put a pumpkin on your doorstep, you know, like one single jack-o'-lantern lit up and that would indicate that you were participating. Now it's like, no, we got to throw out six inflatables, got to cover the house in that uh, caution tape and uh, cobwebs to indicate that we are doing Halloween. (laughs) So it was really obvious for the kids that was nice but this whole like uh, keeping up with the joneses is uh it's wild with the inflatables <laughs> inflatables <laughs> everywhere everywhere i looked yeah, yeah it was so much fun yeah and, and also gone was that frightening covid mood of last year <laughs> last year was not fun you know with all the um we saw lots of police officers patrolling last year and like uh you know a lot of kids were dressed up as the coronavirus last year <laughs> i saw a few squid games this year and uh, and kids oh, yeah. and, and, and kids that were quite little and and i haven't watched it but i thought hmm i wonder if that person is actually watching the show or not but you're right the mood <laughs> was just so great and fun i think i only saw one house that had the candy shoot still that had the pipe that went down the front steps which is fine if people are comfortable more comfortable giving out candy that way absolutely uh, raji i got into it i was part of a pumpkin carving brigade on Saturday getting ready for it and I brought out the glitter so my pumpkins were covered in glue (laughs) and glitter and I wasn't at my house it was in in another neighborhoods and I think I left a lot of glitter in that neighborhood to to the parents chagrin it was everywhere (laughs) (laughs) you know what else I saw yesterday I saw a lot of full-size chocolate bars Yes. From a parent's perspective, if you're the parent that takes from your child's (laughs) stash, like, okay, I can see why that's really great. But if you're not that parent, 
then it's like, uh, no, I'm not into this. Keep those out of my kids' <laughs> hands. They were like, what are these things? Why are they so big? And I was like, why don't you just pass that one along to your friends? <laughs> yeah, I wonder about that. There were a few, I saw a few of those too. So the, the house where I was, I was at a friend's house in the Riley Park neighborhood and we were counting. Mm-hmm. And when I left, they were at about 250 kids had come trick-or-treating. Oh, wow. Yeah, there were a lot of kids out in that neighborhood. And and again, it was great, a great vibe happening. But there were some kids, the same thing. They were seeing these full-size chocolate bars. There was one house giving out full-size chocolate bars. But I thought, well, there's no way... Maybe they are, but I thought there there can't be any way they're giving out 250 of these things. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Where do you go from there? <laughs> I heard like I heard about more people getting chips this year. Mm-hmm. Like if you supersize a bag of chips, that's trouble. You know, like that is don't bring picnic food. Don't bring yeah. you know, out these huge bags of chips, please. You know what else was over the top? I heard you and Gord talking about the fireworks. These were insane last night. I mean, they started a few days prior and I thought, oh, is this just my neighborhood? Of course. And then I went on social media and saw, oh no, it is like across Metro Vancouver. It is in Surrey, New West. It's all over the place. And people, did you see these pictures and videos of people shooting fire cro- fireworks across fields mm-hmm. at yeah. each other? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons in Vancouver. I mean, this was the first year they were banned, although you would never know, never given the know. amount that went off, especially last night. I, I think maybe there weren't as many leading up to Halloween. A lot of times, you two weeks out every night. But exactly for that reason, there have been homes burnt down because people have shot fireworks into them. Oh, for sure. And then, of course, like if you have pets or if you have children who like already were hopped up on sugar and all the candy they'd been eating and then it's finally time to go to bed and they just keep hearing these uh, explosions in the sky go off and I'll remind our listeners uh, you can probably expect the fireworks are going to continue because the Valley is just a few days away that's on Thursday and that is the festival of lights and so people will be doing fireworks on the Valley too and I have a feeling Jill <laughs> they just are going to keep them going just keep going from Halloween <laughs> every night until the Wadley. So we'll see. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, and we know too, there were uh, police were out in full force. And again, great to see people out enjoying themselves and out and about, but not great when we hear that uh, they had to uh, make some arrests and deal with uh, some public drunkenness and people that just took it a little bit too far. Yeah. Yeah, that did happen. I think um, people were just out in full force, excited that we could have a more normal Halloween and went to some took it a little too far. Yeah, I noticed today also you guys are talking about uh, just the precautions that people are taking due to these reports that we hear of unprovoked attacks on strangers. And I wanted to throw my two cents into that, that I have changed my behavior around that and that I... I've taken out my um, evening walks or my evening runs um, because they usually take place just after I've put the kids down and it's dark. Mm. Uh, I no longer feel safe so uh, in the streets and, and so I don't do that anymore. I also will always pay now for underground parking and that doesn't make me feel uh, any safer. So when I go into work, I, I am parking underground and in the building because I don't want to be walking around outside uh, when it's dark out. But uh, yeah, I don't feel any safer. So I feel like I am looking over my shoulder a lot more. All right. We're going to put that question again. That is our question of the day. Raji, thank you. That is Mornings with Simi contributor Raji So. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. Coming up this half hour, we are going to be checking in with the head coach of the BC Lions. But first, if you've seen the footage, we've been covering it on the news on this station as well. It was a busy night in some parts. As many people took to the streets, whether it was trick-or-treating or going to pubs, bars, restaurants, busy both Saturday and Sunday. So how did those establishments deal with the crowds and how was the weekend? Jeff Gwinnard joins us now, Executive Director of the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, how would you describe how things went this weekend? You know, it felt a little bit more like the before times out there. Um, you know, remember last year, me at Halloween, we had to shut down liquor service at 10 p.m. And, and patrons didn't like that. They took to the streets on Granville Street and we had the, the, a whole bunch of chaos uh, this year, though, aside from not being able to dance, we could have people, you know, stand and mingle. Everyone had to keep their masks on, obviously. But uh, it was an opportunity for folks to actually have a good night uh, to kind of forget about COVID for a little while. And were pubs and restaurants and that ready for the crowds and ready to invite people back in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been preparing for this for a while and, and waiting and waiting, waiting for this to happen. And it's been a, a gradual sort of phased reopen, right, with gradual protocols lifting every every few months. So. Uh, but there was no surprises for this at all. And also, you have to remember, I mean, this, this is the, what we do, right? This is actually what our business is. We're used to having crowds. Um, every single liquor-serving establishment uh, that, that's in a popular area is going to be having a good night for Halloween, right? That's, that's kind of a, a long-standing tradition. So we were ready for it. Uh, we brought in enough staff for it, and we had the right programming in place. And the only thing that was a, a bit difficult is customers have a hard time understanding that they're not allowed to dance. So, yeah, we have to remind people multiple times they can't do that. And, uh, you know, you, you don't want to be too, too stringent on that. I mean, it's, it's bopping your head to music, dancing, right? So we didn't end up with too many weird conversations. But overall, it was a really good night. Uh, yeah, I would imagine, too, and looking at some of the footage, even from Granville Street in downtown Vancouver, that would be a tough one as well, telling people that when you're inside any of those places, you can't dance. But to merely looking out the window, you would have seen people dancing in the streets. Yeah, well, we can't control what people do outside, obviously, right? I mean, that's where... We're, uh, our job is to control what happens inside of our buildings. Uh, but once people go outside, yes, it's it's strange. They're dancing in the streets. And uh, at that moment, it's up to the police to, to organize those crowds, and they have to make their decisions on that. Uh, but, yeah, it's a weird one. Um, it's difficult to explain why you're, you're not allowed to dance in a nightclub with a couple hundred people, but you can go to a Canucks game or a concert with thousands of people. Uh, but this is this is what the orders are right now, and we have the provincial health officer back on that. If she's saying we're not allowed to dance for the next few weeks, we're not going to. Uh, we do expect, though, that by the time we get to the holiday season, Christmas and New Year's and those things, that we will be back to, to dancing again, but assuming that everything goes the right way. So we're, we're excited about that. Uh, but overall, last night was, you know, after losing money or breaking even for the past 20, 22 months, uh, last night was a, was a nice bright spot along the way. Uh, did you hear anything about how things went with, I know we've been using the vaccine certificate for a few weeks now, but to, on such a big event when there would have been more people and probably a bit more chaotic at front doors of places, how did that go? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I would say is that we, places like nightclubs, um, it was relatively easy because they have door staff anyway, right? So we're always checking ID, and, and it's just a, a big part of that. Every once in a while, you encounter somebody who has a, a philosophical or ideological objection to the vaccine passports. Uh, but most of that has been sorted out, and those folks were not going out last night because we were very clear with everybody from the moment you took a reservation or booked your spot that we're checking vaccine passports, and you're going to have to wear your mask. 
Um, I mean, there's still some people who are frustrated about it, but I think that's been getting better and better over the past week as, as uh, it's in the news, other provinces are adopting it, and, you know, Canada's adopting it with international visitors and, and all that. Right. And I w- I, it's interesting when you say the wearing of, of the mask, too, and the rules, uh, as we know, that you, you don't have to wear it when you're at a table. But but yes, when you're going to use the washroom or walking around, uh, I would imagine with Halloween masks in the misc- mix, that would have just added a whole uh, other bit to it as well. Yeah, that, that was a bit weird uh, sometimes because you, you don't know if the person's wearing a mask necessarily, right? Or they're already wearing a mask. And that, that's not really you know approved by the provincial health officer or WorkSafe BC if it's a full face covering. But we try to trust our patrons as much as possible and uh, only point out the incidences where people are just obviously not following the rules. Um, but it, overall, it, it was a really good night. And I think the difference between you know now and you know a year ago or even several months ago is you know, we've all got our black belts and COVID protocols right now. And we've all spent a lot of time reminding patrons of the rules. And also patrons have, have adapted and changed a lot over the past couple of years. And, and I'd say we, you know, every night that there's thousands of people out there, there's going to be a few incidents, uh, but those are definitely in the minority. And I've, I've heard nothing but really good things from my members so far. That's great news. Do you think it was also a bit, uh, like you say, comparing to last year when those rules were in place and, and clearly there were people that wanted nothing to do with that and were quite frustrated. Do you yeah. think there was a lot of kind of pent up desire for a big night out and a celebration, be it Halloween, and that it'll kind of become a bit more normalized as we move forward. And and this becomes, like you said, feels like before. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I'm sick and tired of this. I'm sure you're sick and tired of this. I'm sure everybody listening is sick and tired of this, right? So um, yes, there's certainly some pent up desire to get out there and have a bit of fun, particularly for our younger citizens, right? I mean, that's, that's something they've been, been dying to have this kind of experience. We still are in a pandemic, though, so it's, you know, we do have to be careful about it and make sure we're following the rules. But I do think more and more people are getting that. The folks who chose to go out to, you know, places like Granville Street or Davie Street in downtown Vancouver or some of the other more vibrant entertainment districts seemed like they were mostly on the same page. Um, you still did see some folks when they were outside and they're, they're not in line for our establishments anymore. They're out on the street. Some of them are misbehaving a little bit. You know, I live downtown and I heard the fireworks going off last night and you know, all kinds of you know, stuff on the streets. And, and that, that's, that's going to happen. And that's a reflection of that same sort of pent up desire to go out and have some fun. Uh, but overall, I think it was it was a good evening and it was a safe evening. And uh, I don't expect we're going to see any you know, crazy you know, case spikes in the next couple of weeks or anything like that. Uh, the reports are heard back from the front line that people were generally quite respectful. And uh, from the business perspective, a lot of them are sold out and at capacity, which that's music to the ears of a, a bar or restaurant out there. And uh, we haven't had that in the past couple of years. So it was, it was a really good night. All right. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Take care. You too. That is Jeff Gwynard, Executive Director of Able BC, which is the Alliance of Beverage Licensee. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the effects of climate change include the increased risk of flooding, and that also means an increased risk of a tsunami, especially for Vancouver Island communities, so places like Tofino, Nanaimo. A research group at UBC has made an app, and this app is to help residents get ready in case of a disaster. And joining us now is show contributor Raji Sohal. Morning, Jill. Yeah, when there's a disaster emergency, so few of us are actually prepared. And we know that minutes can make a huge difference, but sometimes we actually have hours, many hours of warning and people still, uh, you know, scramble in their pantries and look around the house to quickly like put things together. Well, communities on Vancouver Island, including Parksville, Qualcomm Beach, Nanaimo, Tofino, 
they're being piloted by this new app from researchers at UBC. And it shows that a lot of people don't even know that they're in a tsunami zone uh, because they haven't experienced one yet. But that doesn't mean that one isn't um, too far off. So I talked to Ryan P. Reynolds from the UBC group that made the app. And he says that the app uh, is hoping to show people too that uh, some of this stuff, it's, it's due to climate change. So even if you don't live within an, a tsunami inundation zone, the chances are that there are businesses, um, there are services that you have, for example, power and sewer that might be located in those areas, and they're likely to be impacted. And even if they aren't, things like transportation. So if we look at um, the ferry system coming in, if we look at even private boats that happen to be in those harbors, those are going to be impacted by debris as well. So it really doesn't matter where you are on Vancouver Island. Uh, a tsunami of any sizable proportion is going to have an impact on the island, uh, pretty much everyone that lives there. Yeah. And the other thing with that, Jill, is that what this app is doing is just putting some of these uh, things on the radar of people who live in those areas to think about all the different factors of life that would be affected by uh, a tsunami warning. And this increase in sea levels means there's also an increase in risk of flooding. If we take a normal, uh, if we call such a thing, a normal tsunami, and we compound that with uh, the rise of sea levels of, say, one meter or two meter. What we're going to see is that homes that wouldn't be affected today are definitely going to be impacted in the future because they are within that one to two meter additional elevation. And so that does mean that the communities that we have today are going to see increasing risk in the future. And because of changing weather patterns, we're more likely to see things like coastal flooding. And we're more likely to see uh, increase in stronger storms and therefore flooding as we go forward. And that directly ties back to the impacts of climate change. Hmm. So the warnings out there. And so how does an app help people and get people more prepared? Yeah, this app is really neat. They uh, showed me the beta version of it because it's just being piloted right now. It's not like out open to the public yet. And basically you, you go into the app and you learn about what the hazards are in your area. Like where are sea levels currently? What are the weather patterns like there? What does wind typically do in that area? So that whole component is just the education aspect of it. Because let's face it, when real disaster hits, nobody it takes the time at that point uh, to educate themselves on the geography and climate science of a region, right? So I got a demo of this app. And although that part is really cool, the second part is where it gets into the to the meat of the app. And that is where you look at the risk factors in your specific community, in your specific area, and everything gets personalized into a plan. Here's Ryan P. Reynolds, who's heading the project at UBC's School of Community and Regional Planning. The second part is helping to prepare your personal household, whatever that looks like, in preparing for those pieces and in the future, should something happen, to respond to those events. So we look at the details about the people living in your home, um, you know, how many people live in the home, how old are they, do they have access to a vehicle, um, do they need glasses, do they have a cochlear implant, for example, and we adjust those plans to fit your specific needs with that particular household. Yes, these things, they sound basic, right? But it's those details that are necessary and that go flying out the window when people are in a panic. We hear of stories of people grabbing like a jar of pasta sauce from the pantry when they need to flee the house. And what the app does is it walks you through 
painstakingly all these tiny details, things you wouldn't otherwise think about. So it's not just the evacuation plan, but it's also a communication plan. Like, um, you know, who has a driver's license in the house and who would be the driver? Where's the highest ground? Where would they be heading to if there's an emergency, if there's a tsunami? Um, you know, who can't see without glasses or contact lenses? Uh, does someone in the family require medications? All these aspects, um, which otherwise, I mean, I couldn't come up with these on my own. And to be clear, this is not an alerting app. So it's not an app that is going to alert users that a disaster is on its way. Uh, what happens is if your community's already been alerted by the authorities that there is a tsunami warning, then you have to self-activate the app. And I was so curious about, you know, what do we know about the psychology of people in a disaster? How do they react? Uh, this aspect is untested. They don't know if people will actually uh, use the app, but they sure hope so. We do know that most people are not prepared. Most households have only taken the most basic of preparedness actions. They might have some food in the pantry or some water saved. They might have extra toilet paper or something saved in behind. But we haven't really systematically gone through our homes to do that preparedness. And this is just one tool to make that process easier. The thing we hear mostly is that people are just unsure what hazards exist, if their home is at risk or not. Uh, and so we hope to help explicitly by saying your home is at risk or not at risk from this piece. Um, and then actually showing that there are minor little steps you can take, like acquiring specific insurance riders, for example, that can help to make you much more prepared and much more ready to respond. I got to say, Jill, this app made me think that I am wholly unprepared for any kind of disaster. We don't, uh, we haven't worked on those kind of kits in our family or, you know, a communication plan or anything like that. So I could see an app like this being extremely helpful to users. Yeah, I, interesting too, when you said about the driver's license and who who's going to drive, but you think about it too, one fender bender throws the traffic in this place uh, out, out the window. So I'm oh, not sure, sure that's even going to be an option or a problem at that point. Nobody's going to be getting anywhere. Yeah, there is that, you know, minutes can make a difference, but often we actually have hours. Uh, sometimes they'll know a tsunami is on its way. Like, for example, if there's been an earthquake off of a coast, that it could affect uh, our region with a tsunami and that we might have X amount of hours. X could be eight hours. X could be 16 hours. So it, there is enough time for people to take an action plan that they've already worked on and put it into place. All right. Interesting stuff. Raji, thank you so much. Thanks, Jim. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi today. Well, certainly during this pandemic and even before, many Canadians experience isolation and loneliness. Many people who were staying home, who were adhering to the restrictions at the beginning of the pandemic, just like those Space travelers have also experienced isolation and loneliness. Could this be solved or at least helped with the use of virtual reality? Well, here to talk more about this is Katerina Stepanova, a PhD candidate in the School of Interactive Arts and Technology at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me. How does or how could virtual reality help people with loneliness and isolation? Great question. Uh, it is true that people often think of virtual reality is this technology that's very isolating ourselves because we're putting on the helmet and kind of leaving this world for a little while. Uh, but there's actually quite a lot of research that is being developed across the world um, trying to see whether we can recreate certain experiences that we know 
uh, typically will elicit this feeling of global interconnectedness, like the experience of awe, for example. Uh, if you're climbing up on the mountain and you reach the top and you see all this beautiful landscape around you, you often have this overpowering feeling of realizing how the world is much bigger than you are and you're a part of this nature and this our planet and you kind of have this sense of being connected to all of it. Uh, and uh, those experiences are very uh, unique and they're available in different kinds of situations, often in nature, sometimes with architecture, culture. Uh, but obviously, if you live in a, a situation of isolation where you're not able to go out there and experience it, not able to get to the top of the mountain, um, this is maybe where virtuality can come in and uh, present some of this experience to you where you can feel in it present with all of your body and being immersed in it and have those emotions that can give you a sense of connection. And do you find too, is it is it things like climbing a mountain or going on a hike that, for, yeah, for whatever reason, like you said, you might not be able to get out and do that, or more so going on a trip to Mars or things that even mm-hmm. if you can get out of your house, you're probably not going to be taking a trip to Mars, but you could do that with, with a virtual reality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is the thing that I worked on. I looked throughout my master's and PhD and we're researching it all up is the experiences that um, called overview effect that is unique to astronauts. Uh, it's the experience that astronauts have when they see the Earth from out of space and they have this profound moment of realizing how beautiful our planet is, but at the same time how fragile it is uh, and how we're all united together as a species and need to protect our planet. And it's like a very strong overpowering feeling of connectedness that astronauts bring in um, back when they return to Earth and they often uh, kind of become humanitarians after they come back. Uh, and this is sort of a quintessential type of this experience of awe that's obviously not accessible for most of us on our planet. And virtual reality is a great uh, tool uh, to explore how can we achieve it. We've uh, done this in our lab and we can actually see how people can experience goosebumps that we can visibly observe from their skin or uh, they report feeling more connected afterwards in like questionnaires and interviews. And have you yourself spent much time going through these experiences, these virtual realities? Uh, I myself uh, don't go as much as some of my colleagues in my lab. Um, I'm sort of very selective with the type of the experiences that I go in. Uh, and uh, uh, some of them do definitely uh, provide uh, interesting emotional experience that is very unique to uh, like virtuality. It's not trying to recreate the experiences that we might be able to achieve, but rather um, sort of provides a new variety of the experience that we may not have been able to uh, have any other way because you can uh, create this world that is very different from our actual physical world around us. Um, and this could be um, more inspiring. Uh, and, and I ask only because I think mm-hmm. there would be others in this scenario too. While it seems so intriguing and going to places like space or say the Grand Canyon or places that it could transport you, I, I'm wondering physically if people respond, if you're more prone to say have motion sickness or if, if mm-hmm. uh, even those kind of virtual rides that you can go on. I know a lot of people get nauseous. I, I'm wondering if that becomes an issue with this as well. Uh, it's definitely an issue with virtuality at large. Um it is some experiences may not be compatible for everyone, and motion sickness is a, is a common um, side effect that could occur. Uh, but there's ways to design the experiences that 
in a way that wouldn't result in motion sickness, like none of the experiences that we create in our uh, lab at Simon Fraser University uh, really gives people that much motion sickness because we work with navigation and virtual reality specifically. Uh, and as long as you don't create a, as much of a conflict between uh, what you head is feeling like what your vestibular system is feeling in terms of your movement and what your eyes are perceiving in terms of your movement, uh, then you shouldn't be getting motion sickness. So a roller coaster ride, of course, will give you re- get you really motion sick. And I'm actually really prone to motion sickness. I'm like a, a great, great test subject for that. Um, but if you're having experience that has movement that is much smoother and where you need to use your own body in order to turn around and lean in the direction of your movement rather than using controllers, um, then you don't get this conflict as much and people usually are fairly comfortable in it. And do you see this then becoming more widespread, the use of this, uh, again, to kind of combat the negative effects of isolation, getting it to more people and showing a lot of the benefits? Yes, for sure. It's a, it's a really growing field. And um, like for us as BI researchers, uh, COVID actually has been sort of a, um, in some way a benefit for our field because uh, people start realizing more how uh, this technology can actually be useful if we're not able to access other kind of experiences ourselves. And so there's a lot of development that's happening, in, uh, for example, in the University of, uh, Catholic University of, of Milan uh, is doing a lot of research in combating different negative effects of uh, COVID uh, with the use of virtual reality in order to support the mental well-being of people. And will you continue doing this research then? Um, yes, we're um, going to be doing this research for a while, probably, and uh, uh, for this uh, um, space uh, a travel study that's uh, starting in Moscow um, this Friday, this eight-month-long isolation study where we're testing how uh, VR experience is going to support the um, mental well-being and the sense of connection of um, the crew of six people that are going to go into this eight-month-long isolation. Uh, we're going to study it throughout this eight months, and then on the exit in July, we're going to come out. And I'm going to go to Moscow and um, take some uh, post-experimental measures from the crew. All right. Well, it's very interesting research. And again, for anybody feeling isolation, uh, would I'm sure is excited to hear that this is something that's being done to help combat that. Katerina, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.